You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. As we've been looking and talking over the past several weeks, we've seen that a lot of what's talked about in this Old Testament law is reiterated in the New Testament as expectations for how we're supposed to live as believers. And we said that God's character is seen through this law and it's meant to be adopted into our normal rhythm of life. So seeing his character and living out his character is something that we still do in the New Testament, even though we're not under this law. Uh, It's a way that we image him well. So it does make the, the Old Testament applications relevant, even if they're not authoritative for our lives today. And then last week, we really began to see Uh, more on a day-to-day basis how some of this stuff was being lived out in Israel. And we said that the gospel should impact our lives by creating within us a passion for making things right when we have committed wrong, while also being gracious and forgiving to others when we've been wronged ourselves. And so last week, we looked at some real specific situations that were kind of normal and common in Israelite culture where uh, individuals were being wronged, uh, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally, and there were laws put in place for how to make that right. And, and we talked last week that we as Christians have that same, that same idea imposed upon us that when we do wrong to others, we have a responsibility to make it right. Um, and, and really we're to go above and beyond, particularly when it's purposeful, but even when it's accidental, when we could have put measures in place to protect others and we didn't, we're kind of on the hook to make that right. We looked at Zacchaeus being a great example of this, that Zacchaeus had wronged others. The gospel impacts his life. He turns around and makes it right, but goes above and beyond what it would look like to make it right, right? He's, he's giving back not just what he's stolen, but, but multiple times what he has stolen to others. We also talked about uh, being like Jesus when he talks about when you have uh, been slapped in the cheek to turn the other cheek. That, that we see that eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth concept in the law. But we talked about the idea being that, that that is for the judges and the rulers and the authorities to enact. But us on an individual basis, we're to be willing to be wronged, right? We can, we can, we can take the wrong from others without retaliating, without trying to get back. And so we continue looking at some of these themes today as we get into uh, the, the second half of chapter 22, I thought we were going to finish it today, but we're going to come up just short. Um, I felt like there was enough uh, that we needed to look at, at at most of these verses without finishing out the chapter. So we'll actually finish out chapter two and get into 23 uh, next week. It, it's a challenging passage once again this week. Uh, we've talked about some of the the challenges of looking at this law because it was culturally relevant for them, sometimes confusing for us. Some of the topics today hit on a on a more mature level. And so we're going to try to address that knowing the age groups that we have in our room as well. So parents know that we're going to try to navigate this in a way where you get the point uh, and you can pass on the point to your kids as you see fit uh, based on what they picked up today too. Um, Exodus chapter 22, verse 16, it says, if a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my, my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. 
If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a moneylender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. We'll stop there today with our text. We'll look at our summary sentence. Those who follow God embrace responsibility for their bodily passions. They refuse to try to manipulate a good God to do things differently than he chooses. And they protect and provide for those who are in need. Those who follow God embrace responsibility for their bodily passions. They refuse to try to manipulate a good God to do things differently than he chooses. And they protect and provide for those who are in need. For our kids, those who follow God serve him and trust him by protecting and serving others. It's helpful for us to remember why are we studying this law, right? Why are we studying this law? Because it exposes our sin and our need for a savior. That's what the law does, right? The law was never given with an attempt to have people keep it for salvation. It was given to show our sin. It was given to show our need for a savior. It does teach us and guide us towards holy living. Why? Because it reveals to us God's holy character. So as we look at it once again today, we want to see the character of God. We want to see how that applies to us today and how we're called to live that out. Um, What we saw last week reinforces the idea that God's commands are good for society. We'll see that again today. These laws are good for society. Remember, he's constructing a group of people to live together under a government, eventually under a king. And so it's different in that the people of God today are found in the local churches all around the world, not under one specific government, under one specific ruler or leader. So again, there's some nuances here that are different for us in the New Testament. Uh, But we certainly can see the goodness of God's commands for society. The New Testament calls the, the, bird, the, the, the commands or the laws of God not burdensome. The burden about them is felt when it's the sin nature that we have that wants to live in contrary or different to them, right? These, these commands should not be seen as burdensome. They're the best way for a society to live together. Now, the activities in this text uh, feel uncommon in some ways. Some of them we can definitely see where we might would struggle, Others seem more uncommon, maybe, but they were very common back then. Uh, This would have been very common, common struggles for them, right? And it's why God was judging the land that they were going into. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 23. It says, and you shall not lie with any animal and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it as a perversion. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. For by all these, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean and the land became unclean so that I punished its iniquity and the land vomited out its inhabitants. One of the things that the Lord does is he calls his people to live differently. He highlights the fact that the people of the promised land are living in this way. And that they are being judged for it. So as he calls them to live differently, he reminds them, hey, the, the, the commonality that you see around you, the way your culture is living is wrong, and it's being judged. That's why they're being extinguished from the land. So as you enter the land, be different. Be different than the culture that you see living around you. Um, the idea also is given that if they don't live differently, they're going to be held accountable for it. 
right? In verse 24, we see that if they fail to, uh, to carry out some of these things, particularly if they fail to, uh, to take care of those who are at a disadvantage in their culture, the, the, the sojourner, the, um, the transplant, the immigrant, those who come into their, their land, the fatherless child, the orphan, the widow, if you mistreat them and they cry out to me, the Lord says, I'm going to hear them. And my wrath's going to burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. There's a warning that's attached to it, that if they fail to live this way, God's going to respond as well. In the same ways that he's responding to the people in the land with judgment, he's going to respond to the people of Israel with judgment too. So it's a weighty passage in the sense that there's some things that are, that are demanded of God's people, called upon by God's people, and then there's some consequences for not carrying it out. Again, a lot of this contextually given to Israel as they go into the promised land. What does it mean for us as New Testament believers? What relevancy does uh, staying away from sorcerers have for us today, right? Like you read that and you're like, I don't know how we're going to directly apply that today. Like I didn't struggle with that maybe this week. So what relevancy does it have for my life? Hopefully we'll be able to see uh, some points to take away from this uh, as we get into it today. Number one, take and teach responsibility for your passions. Take and teach responsibility for your passions. The text begins in verse 16 by giving some daily direct application for the seventh commandment about not committing adultery. What's taking place here in this scenario? Well, it's conveying a consensual situation, a consensual relationship between two people who've not yet married, right? These are two people who have not yet married, and they are consensually coming together. We know it's consensual because if you look in other uh, aspects of Leviticus and and Deuteronomy, you see that uh, when there was forced activity between two people, it was handled differently, right? So there's a consensual act that takes place here. And the physical acts that are described here of passion are are told that they can't be separated. They can't be separated from the responsibility that comes with those acts. That basically marriage is to ensue. Marriage is to be a part of this, right? That pleasure comes with responsibility. And the character of God, I think, is clearly seen here that he's passionate about the protection of his children, He's passionate for the protection of his children. He's not going to let this common activity happen in their culture. It's not going to be a part of Israelite culture. And if those uh, who maybe try to live against his commands here try to, try to carry out these acts, he's going to make sure that they're protected, that the people who are most vulnerable in those situations are protected. Look what it says. If the man and the woman come together, they're not betrothed. They're, they're not like engaged. They're not pursuing marriage. Okay, this is, uh, you know, two people after uh, homecoming dance or prom night, like they just come together, right? And, and, and the Lord says, that's not going to be a part of our culture. That's not going to be a part of how we handle ourselves. These are not people pursuing marriage. And so he says, what happens in this case, right? If this took place, there were some things that were given, uh, some parameters that were made to make sure that everybody was cared for properly, Number one, we must remember ourselves that physical acts can't be separated from marital acts. If this took place, the man was required to pay the bridal price as though he was embracing the responsibility of marriage. 
right? This would have been easy for the guy who was betrothed to this person, who had already said, like, this is who I'm choosing to marry, like the, 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 the Mary and Josephs of the world who had already committed to, hey, we're engaged, we're pursuing marriage. If you came to that guy and said, hey, you have to marry her because you did this, he would have been like, okay, that's where we were headed anyways. Right? What's happening here is, is there's an addressment to the, to the man specifically, hey, you weren't moving to marriage, but now you are. Like now you're having to embrace this responsibility. And he would have to pay this bridal price to the father, and it was meant to protect the woman specifically. The money was used not to buy her, right? So don't misunderstand this as though this woman is being sold as property, right? This, this money was given sometimes directly to her. Maybe the dad would hang on to it. It was really an insurance policy. It was basically money that was raised by the individual who chose to marry this girl that basically if something happens to me, Right? Like if I die in a freak accident or I get sick and I perish, that there's money set aside to protect you if I'm gone. Right? Like, so they didn't have like the big insurance companies and provisions that we have today. So, how would you as a mom or dad feel comfortable turning your daughter loose to a man and wondering, like, okay, if y'all move away and, and something happens to you, what happens to her? This money was set aside to take care of her. So the Lord says, if, if this activity gets engaged in prior to marriage, the bride price is to be paid. You have assumed the responsibilities of marriage, and you need to pay up. She isn't being treated like property. She's being valued as an individual with means of protection. It's meant to prevent the Israelite men from acting like animals by thinking they can have whomever they want whenever they want. The message should ring true for us today, too that there's responsibility that comes with these acts, that we don't just get to, to live and choose the way we want to and, and seek pleasure without the responsibility that comes with it. We have to remember ourselves that the physical acts can't be separated from the marital acts. Number two, there's another deeper principle that's going on here is that we must teach our children the same thing. We must teach our children the same thing. I believe the text implies responsibilities of this mistake being communicated prior to it occurring. You teach your children responsibility here. The text communicates the role of the parent playing a huge, massive part in the children coming together in their relationships. Now, this is, this is starting to be a lost art, I think, in our culture, right? The concept of, uh, of, a, of a boy talking to a dad about pursuing his daughter, but the implications here are that the parents are to play a massive role in this, right? Like I made a joke last week that hey, I'd, I'd love to enter into an arranged marriage with most anybody in this room for my children, right? And, and I'm serious about that because, because I want to play a massive role in, in who my children end up with. And I believe in the ways that you are raising your children as parents in this church as well. And we ought to play a massive role in who our kids are choosing to spend time with, who they're choosing to eventually date and fall in love with and eventually marry, right? And, and that starts with who we choose allowing them or who we choose that, for them to be able to spend time with because they fall in love with the people they spend time with, right? And I think this text puts a weighty uh, responsibility on the parent to oversee some of this, right? Because the dad here is pictured as having a, a, a right of first refusal, like, hey, this isn't going to happen. I don't trust this boy with my daughter, right? Um, the father had the right to refuse the marriage if the man was deemed unfit for his daughter. But here's what's interesting is the dude still had to pay, 
Like he still had to come up with the bride price. So this guy and this girl come together and, 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 and they come before the dad and they say, hey, okay, like we got to get married now. Dad's like, that ain't happening. Like, like I know you and that's not happening. Like this, this isn't going to be a good fit for my daughter. Well, because you've engaged in this activity, my daughter may be less desirable to the man that I want her to be with. Right, and so now her protection has even been affected uh, because of the fact that you you took this from her. So he said, like the law says, you got to pay the bride price. You got to pay the sum of money that you would have paid previously. Became really costly for the guy involved in this. Now he's paying up for this act, right? And he may not even get to pursue the marriage with the daughter. This allowed for her to be attractive in the marital process years later, potentially, because the next guy who comes along doesn't have to pay the bridal price. The bridal price has already been paid, right? So what's happening here? Like this is a logistical type thing that's taking place. What's happening here? God's protecting his daughters. God's saying, you're not going to abuse them. You're not going to take advantage of them. You're not going to strip them and, and, and run away without taking care of them. He says, they are going to be protected. And we see the heart of God here. He's passionate about the protection of his children. This provided a strong incentive for a man who wanted to get married to conduct himself in honorable ways. He needed the dad's approval. If he acted selfishly in the pre-marriage relationship, he was jeopardizing his ability to marry her potentially. His character would be called into question. These laws were designed to promote godly patterns of courtship, dating, marriage, and physical activity in that order. God says, my people are going to act different. They're not going to act the same way as the rest of the culture. It's going to look different. They're going to they're keep themselves from marriage. They're going to protect one another in that. The implication that, that we get from this is that premarital relationships and cohabitation is on the rise more and more within the church, giving us great reason as adults to embrace the responsibility to model and teach controlled passions to our children. Man, this is, this is more and more on the rise, and it's not just people outside the church. It's not just lost people. I encounter people all the time who are in the church culture, who are living contrary to what God calls for purity. We got to teach our children as they get exposed to this more and more that it's, that it's not consistent with God's word. You know, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, right? Like, again, like we don't want to fall prey to thinking like, hey, why are you emphasizing stuff in the Old Testament that was for Israel? Because it's emphasized in the New Testament for the church, Right? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? So you are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Now, a lot of our kids in this room, like this isn't even on your radar yet, like the idea of getting married. Others, I mean, you're starting to get to that age now where it's like, hey, who's the Lord going to provide for me? right? You're starting to date. You're starting to, to have thoughts about what job am I going to work? Where am I going to live? What's the career I'm going to have? And who's going to come alongside and be a part of that, right? So like this is super relevant for you, super relevant that the Lord has 
purity in mind for your relationships. Purity in your mind for your relationships. And us as adults who have already kind of been through that and, and have, have gotten into uh, marital relationships, like our job's not done yet. Like we have a responsibility to model this well, the purity we maintain in our marriages and the ways that we teach our children. And, and the teaching of our children, I don't just relegate that to the parents of our church because what Jesus says is that when you get to come be a part of his family, you get more moms and dads and you get more children than you originally signed up for. Right? So we may have some adults in here who say, I don't even have kids. So like the teaching part doesn't fall on me. It does if you're a part of our church, because we want you and we invite you to help raise our kids with us, to teach our children, right? To teach our children as spiritual influences. So whether you have kids or not, we're saying as adults, you have a calling to help teach our children purity, to model it, to help instruct them in it, Right? As we come together for C groups, I want my kids to see the interaction of the adults in our church, that the moms and the dads, the husbands and the wives, and I want them to say, I want my marriage to be like that, right? They're not, they're not saying that now because they don't, they don't know that yet, but I want them as they continue to get older to say, I want my marriage to be like that. I want to be a dad like that. I want to be a mom like that, right? And so we have this responsibility. That's what's being conveyed in this, in this text. There's purity that we're called to. But then there's also this teaching responsibility that I think is implied here as well, to teach children, to teach them uh, the requirements of God and what he desires. Number two, and we get to move beyond that now, thankfully, right into sorcery, right? Like it doesn't get, it doesn't get a whole lot easier, okay? But, but at least we can talk about it and I don't have to dance around it maybe. Remember, verse 18, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. Verse 19, whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Now, verse 20, whoever sacrifices any God other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. Here's the thing. All three of these crimes are typically associated with the worship and the devotion to false gods. And the punishments were specific to that time and people. Okay, so we read about all three of these requiring death, right? We don't obviously, as a church, read anything in here and say, okay, we got to kill somebody if they fall prey to any of these sins. This part's not applicable to us, right? I will say that I think that uh, judgment-type measures have been given to the church for people who fall into unrepentant, perpetual sin, and that's removal from the church, right? This whole whole idea even of like being devoted to destruction Right, the New Testament, 1 Corinthians, we'll get into that in our small group studies, carries the idea of someone who needs to be removed and kind of handed over to Satan if necessary to get his life right. Okay, so there is like some extreme measures that we're called to as the church. If somebody dives into some of this stuff, like, hey, we might have to remove you from our fellowship until until you get serious about following Jesus again. But we don't we don't feel any pressure here to say, like, we're supposed to take people's lives if they fall into this. But it should give us some inclination as to how serious the Lord takes some of this stuff. Right. These laws were given to protect the purity of worship in the community of faith. That's what excommunication is given to us for today, too, to protect the purity of worship in our community of faith. Now, some of these things are not typical struggles that we think of in our church, right? But as we grow, we've talked about this, as we grow, we're going to find more and more people coming potentially from 
from a darker past where some of these things may have been a part of their life, right? So we don't just dismiss this and say, well, this has no relevancy because I don't know anybody that's ever struggled with any of this. Um, you may, you may, and you may not know them now, but you may in the near future. So we need to keep that in mind too, that as we look at this, like don't just dismiss it as completely unrelevant. We also know that, especially within our younger group, um, younger generation, uh, the occult-type practices continue to be on the rise, right? Like, it may not be something that you struggle with as an adult, but, man, I hear more and more stories of, of younger kids, like teenagers, that are, that are dabbling in the occult practices. And so this certainly has relevancy for us to, to know uh, why that is serious and why God would call us away from it. The sorcery piece is, um, it flows from a desire to tap into the spiritual realm. Uh, The bestiality that's described here uh, was a uniting with the gods who were depicted by those animals, right? Like that's where the motivation came from, is a desire for unity and um, um, intimacy with, with the gods that they worshiped. And how did they pursue that? Well, they pursued it in unholy manners through the animals that they would try to depict their gods as, right? Um, lost my place here. Um, the pagan sacrifices, they were, these were appeals to gods to act, right? We see that when Elijah's on Mount Carmel. They would, they, would, they would give these sacrifices to their gods in hopes that their gods could be manipulated to act in certain ways. These activities are certainly present still, still in our culture. They're potentially on the rise in the younger generations. And I think we have a greater job to help our kids understand um, what's happening here and how to have the right perspective, right? So this isn't just a text that you go to to determine if your family can watch Harry Potter or not, right? Like, like I've had these, these verses sent to me when you know a teacher at Trinity references a Harry Potter you know, illustration, you know, we've got some, some super conservative parents who their children aren't allowed to watch that. We probably have a mixture of people in our church right here that have different perspectives on Harry Potter, Star Wars. We certainly have it at, at Trinity, right? The tendency is if you fall in the, the, the less conservative camp about some of those things is to maybe make fun of and tease those who, who are in the more conservative camp. The tendency of those who's in the conservative camp is to judge those who aren't, right? And both perspectives are wrong. Right? Like we don't have a, a direct understanding of, of um, what would be right or wrong. So I think a lot of that is, is personal conviction, right? And we respect the personal convictions of each other, okay? Um, so I, I think this text is, is, is far less about Harry Potter and whether we should watch, um, you know, wizards and sorcerers on TV. Like I'll give you my perspective on it is that um, there's certainly movies and books that will portray magic and sorcery and that type of thing. And, it, and it's, it's never tied or um, associated with what's happening here and that being demonic practices. But there are movies and TV shows and books that absolutely tie it to that. And there's, there's no confusion about it, right? So I think the question you have to ask yourself as a parent, as an individual is, when watching or reading this stuff, am I drawn to the demonic? Am I drawn to the occult practices or is that never even entering my mind? Right? I think that, that would be a, a good healthy filter for knowing how to process it. But again, the purpose that I have in looking at this text today is not to, to have us leave today knowing whether we should watch Harry Potter or not. I do want us to see, I do want us to see the character of God 
that he is jealous to be trusted with our greatest needs. Let me say that again. He is jealous to be trusted with our greatest needs. Let me read to you from Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24. This is after he reiterates some of the things that we're looking at right here. It says, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. This is on the heels of of the Israelites being reminded that they can't worship other gods. They can't give their devotion to other gods. Why? He's a consuming fire. He's a jealous God. He wants to be trusted, not manipulated. He wants to be trusted, not manipulated. So let's just, let's just think for a second. If this doesn't have to do with Harry Potter, what does it have to do with? I believe that the tendency for people at this time to go to the sorcerer, it was to fix situations in their life that they were incapable of fixing themselves. Right? So, so you would have sick needs or circumstantial type needs where, where you're trying to appeal to a higher power to fix my situation, make it different. Why is sorcery wrong for the believer? Because we already have access to the greatest power, right? We already have access to the greatest power. And it becomes trusting his will and not trying to manipulate him to do things differently than how he's choosing to do them, right? Number one, we're invited to commune with the holy God who hears and responds to our needs. We're invited to commune with the holy God who hears and responds to our needs, He reminds us that he hears the cries of those who need his compassion. Like it's right after this that he reminds us of this, right? Back in Exodus chapter 22, verse 23. What's he say? He's talking about the widow and the orphan. He says, if you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. Verse 24 talks about the response that he'll have to it. In verse 27, talking about the poor individual. If he cries to me, I will hear him for I am compassionate. We're invited to commune with the holy God who hears and responds to our needs. Like we have that invitation to cry out to him. We don't have to conjure some some spell. We don't have to go to some mystic or some psychic to fix our situation. We also need not sit in our bedrooms and complain to a God who's good, right? We may never be tempted to go to a sorcerer, but every one of us is tempted to be dissatisfied with the one who is orchestrating this whole universe. We're all prone to that temptation, right? He doesn't meet our expectations. He doesn't do what we want him to do, and we wish we could change him sometimes. We're invited to commune with him. And then number two, We are, we are reassured by a compassionate God that he works good without removing the bad. He's a good God, and he doesn't always remove the bad. And yet we can trust him that he remains good in it. I put in my notes, to desire anything outside of what God is specifically allowing and intentionally using in my life is a direct attack on his sovereignty. For me to be dissatisfied with what God's allowing and using in my life, that's an attack on his sovereignty. I'm saying that I know better. 
that, that I wish I could change it because I know, I know how my life works better and I know what I need better, right? The implication here for us is that I need not appeal to a power outside of Yahweh when I find myself in need because he has readily assured me that if the trial or challenge is selected to remain in my life, it's there for a purpose of good that he is intentionally working on my behalf. Like that's why you would have gone to a sorcerer. That's why you would have appealed to a higher power. It's fix what's going on in my life because it's not good. Now we can go to our God and say, Lord, please fix what's going on in my life because it doesn't feel good. And oftentimes he'll respond and, and he'll work and move and change situations and circumstances. But a lot of us have appealed to the highest power and have seen no change. The trial remains. The challenge stays present. And the comfort and hope that we have as believers is that we don't then need to go to a different power to fix it. We can pause and say, if it's still here, if it's chosen to remain in my life, it's there for a purpose of good, and he's intentionally working it in my life. I mean, I had some things come up this week that Man, if you told me there was a sorcerer I could go to, I'd have been tempted to go and say, hey, fix this because I don't want this. Like, I need this to look different. But this type of verse reminds me, like, I don't have to do that. I don't have to think who can fix this outside of the one who is good, who is faithful, and who can be trusted. I can say, you know what? Like, if it's still there, if it remains, and if it's not changed, and if it's not taken away, it's good. It's good for me. There's purpose there, and he's intentionally working it. And I don't have to, I don't have to think twice about it. I don't have to question him. I don't have to go try to appeal to something different. That's what the Lord wanted his people to understand. And you don't, you don't fall into what the culture would tell you that, hey, your life needs to be different because things aren't working out the way that you want. And we can look at it and say, it's working out exactly how he wants. And I'm going to fight for contentment. I'm going to fight for contentment in that. Number three, we need to feel and we need to fix the needs of others. We need to feel and we need to fix the needs of others. What do I mean by feel? When he calls upon the children of Israel to be compassionate and generous to the foreigner, to the sojourner, to the widow, to the orphan. He encourages them to remember how they felt when they were in a similar situation. He says, you felt this as, he, as, as you were in bondage in Egypt. You know what these people feel like, so respond accordingly. And it's a, it's a perfect illustration of the Old Testament golden rule, right? We treat other people the way we want to be treated. He's saying, you were treated this way and you didn't like being treated this way. So treat other people differently. Treat them differently, right? Don't treat them the way that you were treated. He says, you can't mistreat a widow. You can't mistreat the orphan, the fatherless. You can't mistreat the sojourner. The character of God is seen here. He's a compassionate God who demands his, people's Im uh, his people image his experience, compassion well to others. Let me say that again. He's a compassionate God who demands that his people image his experience, compassion well to others. We've experienced his compassion. We need to image that compassion well to others who need it too. He wants to protect the defenseless, the disadvantaged, the weak members of society. The stranger, the widow, the orphan, 
those who typically get the worst type of treatment, he says, you create a difference in their experience. Why? Because that's his heart. Psalm chapter 68, verse 5. Psalm chapter 68, verse 5. He says he's the father of the fatherless, the protector of widows, is God in his holy habitation. He's the husband to the husbandless. He's the father to the fatherless. And he wants us to be a part of protecting them from injustice and providing for them. We've got some of those people in our church, right? And we need to provide for them. We need to be the protectors for them. He's called us to that. He's called us to be an extension of him in carrying that out. Our experience of having our needs met by God motivates us to meet the needs of others. He says, I took care of you. I saved you out of Egypt. Now image that compassion to others too. You were spiritual strangers. You were widows. You were orphans. And we've been welcomed into a relationship with him through the gospel. And we're now to serve those who literally find themselves in this spot, right? We're described as strangers to God's people, particularly as Gentiles. And we were invited in. We saw that in the book of Ephesians, right? We were, uh, we were husbandless and he, he became our bridegroom, right? We were orphans and he became our father. He adopted us as his children. He says, now you take care of those people who literally find themselves in that type of spot. Welcome them, love them, remember who you used to be. The New Testament calls us to do the same, right? First Timothy, First Timothy 5 talks about the ways that we care for widows. James 1.27 talks about the way we care for widows and orphans. We take care of them. We provide for them. Number two, our experience of having our needs met by God equips us to meet the needs of others. He goes on to say, after taking care of widows and orphans and strangers, that there's a responsibility to see the needs of others and to help. We feel their need and we seek to help them. He says, if you lend money to any of my people with, who, with you who is poor, you shall, not make, you shall not be like a money lender to him and you shall not exact interest from him. He says, you don't get to take advantage of somebody when they, when they're, they fall into misfortune. Don't take advantage of someone in need. Don't capitalize on them. Now, he gives them the right to be able to say, hey, here's some money, just pay it back. But I think what he would really call us to is if we can to give without an expectation of it being paid back. We see this in the New Testament. Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, verse 34. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. This is a direct application in the New Testament of the law we're looking at. Are we supposed to give to, to our brother or sister who's in need? Absolutely. And we're to expect no more than the same amount back. But then he says, really, that's what even sinners do that. You know, a good sinner friend would, would give to his sinner friend this, you know, the money and expect it back. He's not going to charge him interest. Like, that's basic sinner stuff. He's like, you're a saint. Like, you've been saved. Like, it looks different for you. Like, you ought to be able to give it and expect nothing in return. Not just nothing with interest, but nothing at all back is the implication. It's good to loan, but it's better to just give it. And not just to your friends, but to your enemies 
too. The implication here is if you aren't currently in need, then God has put you in position to help someone who is. If you're not currently in need, then you've been put in a position to help someone who is. And we ought to see those needs and we ought to feel those needs. We ought not be dismissive of those needs. This passage would call us to be intentional about feeling the needs of others, seeing them, feeling them, knowing that there were times when we've been in need as well and other, people's have, other people have helped us. God has helped us. How can we be a help in time of need for others? Proverbs chapter 28, verse 8. Whoever multiplies his wealth by interest and profit gathers it for him who is generous to the poor. The Lord blesses us to be generous to the poor. James 2.14 talks about when we see needs, part of our faith and works and action is to give to those needs. The application for us today is we can't be guilty of failing to do these things. You say, Adam, like, I mean, like, who's really, who's really failing at, at taking care of, of widows and orphans, right? The children of Israel were. You know, the Lord says, I'll judge you if you, if you fail to do these things. They fail to do these things. Malachi chapter 3, verse 5. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be swift witnesses against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. And there were people in Israel who were guilty of all these things. They're going to the sorcerer. They're going to uh, the empty well of adultery. They're going to um, these things and they're disobeying the Lord. The application for us is that we need to be different than our culture for our culture. We need to be different than our culture for our culture. Because those who follow God embrace responsibility for their bodily passions. They refuse to try to manipulate a, God, a good God to do things differently than he chooses. They protect and provide for those who are in need. In the gospel, God changes our use of our body. He changes the way we interact with him. He changes our use of money. That's what the Lord does. If we're truly followers of him, he radically changes these areas of our life. We don't have to go to the empty wells of physical pleasure. We don't have to go to these other sources to try to find change in our circumstances when the good Lord is working purposes for his glory. We don't have to be stingy with our stuff. We can see other people in need and say, man, I'm not in need right now. The Lord has equipped me to help this person. It's what it means to live in the faith community. It's what it means to live out our faith regularly on a daily basis, to see the heart of God and to have that adopted into our daily rhythm. This is what it looks like, living out the law on a regular basis. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for your goodness. Lord, I pray that you would reinforce that in our hearts and minds on a daily basis. You're a good God. And as your children, you've promised to always work good for us. And we thank you and we praise you for that. Lord, I pray that we would respond in obedience to you by looking at an Old Testament law and seeing the New Testament translations of it. Lord, help us to be people who are pure with our bodies. Lord, help us to not act like the culture around us. Help us to be different. Help us to be a light. Help us to serve our culture by being different. Lord, help us to, to be satisfied with you. Lord, help us to see that you've given access to you. 
We can cry out to you. We can commune with you. We can trust that you hear our our cries and you respond in the best ways possible, even when it's not the ways that we would choose. Lord, help us to trust you always. Lord, help us to remember constantly how you've saved us and how you've rescued us and how you've put us in a position to help others around us. Lord, help us to be faithful, to see needs, and to look, to way, look for ways that we can particularly meet those needs ourselves. Help us to be sensitive to the needs around us. Lord, we get so focused on our own wants and needs and our own plights and situations that oftentimes when others are sharing theirs, we just dismiss it. Lord, help us to feel what's going on around us. Help us to find ways to help fix it with the ways that you've equipped us to. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.